trouble for 50 years. Uh, so like I said, my name's Silas. I uh, just thought I'd share a few things about myself. Uh, I have spoken here once before. It was before Lee and Andy were here. Uh, and I'd say the congregation's just been getting bigger and bigger. So again, it's really exciting to see what's going on in Fremantle. Uh, I'm a physiotherapist. I work at Fiona Stanley. It's better than the newspapers say. Uh, I, um, I attend Subi Church. I've been there for pretty much all my life. My parents have been there, my grandparents have been there, my great-grandparents have been there, and so it's great to be here this morning. Uh, the last time I was here, I, uh, I, does anyone remember what I spoke about? <laughs> I spoke about some, uh, some Romans, I talked about Romans, I also mentioned a particular shoe, the Birkenstock. Uh, the Birkenstock, that's right, maybe that, that helps. And, uh, I, I thought I'd keep things simple by keeping my uh, illustrations to do with my, my German side of my life. So my wife is German and I often spend time in Germany uh, visiting family and that sort of thing and that's where I picked up the Birkenstock. I was since told I wasn't allowed to wear Birkenstocks on stage when I talk anymore, so I'm in boots today. Uh, so uh, why not, uh, as we get our heads around uh, what it's like to be lost, I'll share a story of uh, only a couple of years ago when I went to Germany to have my first experience of snow. Very exciting thing for anyone who's grown up in Australia and uh, can only dream of a white Christmas. And so uh, this, was, this was at a stage where my wife and I, we weren't married at that point, so we were still, still trying really hard to impress each other. So she, she took me to the highest mountain in the whole of Germany, Zugspitze. It's a glacier, it's amazing, you should go there. And so I, we, we went to Zugspitze and I had my first experience of snow and it was amazing. It's fully fluffy and everything like you imagine. Uh, I decided then as well, we'd you know, do some s snowboarding and skiing. So she's born a skier uh, and I thought, I've surfed before, I'll, I'll snowboard. Team, it's fine, it'll be fine. So uh, I got an instructor, which was also Nadine, my girlfriend at the time, uh, was my snowboarding instructor. Hasn't been snowboarding before. Uh, so it didn't take me too long to get good enough to kind of hover my way down and I made the big mistake that uh, everyone makes is they think they're better than they are. So I decided I'd tackle a slightly bigger mountain. With snowboarding, your feet are fixed, you can't use your hands to help at all, it's all in the way you move, forward and backward, leaning, a little bit like surfing or skating to actually shift your direction. The problem with when you go really slow is that you're at the mercy of the angle of the mountain. So you can't kind of carve up and get back the way you want to go. You just slowly go at the mercy of the angle of the mountain. So I'm at the top of the mountain, I'm slowly starting to go down and I realise that I'm kind of veering to the left and there was a slight veer of the, the mountain to the left as well and to the left was, was a cliff. This was also the point that the beautiful snow started pouring down and the snow stopped being beautiful and started just being uh, blinding. Uh, I was getting hot and maybe a little bit teary and so my goggles started f fogging up as I slowly tried to lean myself away from this cliff that I was going towards and just sinking, sinking towards it. I looked around and my coach was nowhere to be seen. I, I decided, you know, this is, this is not going to end well if I keep going. I'll disconnect. I, I took my feet out of it and I went to step off the board and sank that deep in snow. <laughs> Because once you're off the board, you're just on your pins and you go straight down in the snow. So now I'm this deep in snow with a board and, long story short, half an hour, walked, walked, walked all the way down, slid on my bottom right to the bottom of the mountain. I finally got to the bottom. 
then my wife turns up. Oh, she wasn't my wife then. I say, Nadine, where were you? What, what happened? You left me. She's like, left you? What do you mean? I, like, I was lost. I nearly died. I was going over the edge. And she says, oh, there was a, a little girl whose um, dad had left her and she was crying in the snow and I went to help her. This was about the time I realised I was associating myself with the six-year-old girl victim. <laughs> so I quickly changed my tone. I was like, yeah, uh, oh, well, you know, you know, it's my first time out there. You just got to be careful. Keep an eye on me. Don't, don't let me go off too much and had to quickly change my tone. Uh, so that was a pretty rough start to the day. The next day we got engaged. Uh, <clears throat> that's the story for the next time I'm here. Um, so <laughs> we're going to look at a parable about a, a lost sheep that has a slightly uh, more positive end to uh, the sheep story than I did. Uh, you guys have been talking about parables for the last few weeks, I believe. So I'm, I'm not sure if anyone's already talked about it, but it's sometimes good to reflect on why Jesus even talked in parables. He used parables to help explain the things of heaven and explain what he was doing on earth. Uh, sometimes the parables are a little bit more cryptic than other parables and a little bit difficult to decipher. They often need a little bit more thought to be put into it than what you give them at first glance. Isn't it interesting, the parable of the sower he tells this parable about this farmer passing out the seeds and then at the end of it, as the crowds leave, the disciples hang around and go, that was a really good parable, Jesus, but what did it mean? <laughs> Even the disciples who were with him, they didn't understand. The key was that they hung around to find out. So I encourage you as you listen to this parable and think about this and even the other ones in the future weeks, let your mind hang around just a little bit longer on the parable and see if a little bit more comes out than you first was there. So the context, we're, you know, 30 years into the new millennium and Jesus is sharing a meal and conversation with the tax collectors. As usual, he's divided the crowd. We've got some grumbling and we've got some that love him. The tax collectors, we, we've met them in a few other parables. Uh, they're they're the, the scum of the earth in some sense in that Nobody likes them in society. They're the ones that go and collect the tax from the rich or the poor, working for the Romans, taking money away, making life even harder for people as it already was. So they're a very unpopular bunch and uh, they, they're alongside the sinners. We don't know exactly what the jobs of the sinners are, but I guess that's a bit of an explanation in itself. And then we've got the Pharisees standing over to the other side, grumbling. The Pharisees, they're the, the lawyers of the day but they're a religious lawyer. They're a lawyer for Judaism. It's like a pastor who's a lawyer. Imagine that conversation after a late night dinner. That's a, they're, they're heavy people. They're conversations that are going to really make you struggle, make you feel guilty. And these are the ones that Jesus has rebuked throughout these Gospels as we've read in other parts lots of times. The other person that, that's not identified, but a lot of the commentary does uh, reference, is just bystanders. The bystanders were probably rural folk, people who worked as farmers and worked as shepherds. Uh, and there's some speculation amongst different commentaries as to actually whom Jesus is directly speaking to in this parable. I think it, it's a little bit of speculation here, but, you know, does he, does he stand up from his dinner and turn around to the Pharisees who are grumbling? Or does he face them and tell them what he, what he really thinks about them? Or does he stay there, ignore them and just speak to the tax collectors? Or does he speak so loudly the bystanders can hear? I think it's clear that everyone is meant to hear. 
So I've got three questions I want to ask this morning. If you like taking notes, there's a nice little uh, section in the middle of your booklet. And you can take some notes there or you can take them on your phone. And uh, I'm not telling you to take notes, but if you want to, you can. But uh, the way that I might suggest you do it is write down three words. Give a bit of space so you can write next to it. Who, how, and why. These are the three questions I want us to try and tackle this morning. Who is the sheep? How is the sheep saved? Why is the sheep saved? Who? Usually there are two characters in a parable. God's usually in it somewhere and you're usually in it somewhere. You might relate to one or, one or more character in the parable, but generally you're not the God character. Uh, in this parable, we see the shepherd guarding his flock. That's God. That's God's job. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Throughout the whole Bible, we have this familiar image of God being our shepherd, our protector. So that kind of just leaves one other character, the sheep. So we're the sheep. Okay, but which sheep? We've got two options, don't we? We've got the lost sheep, the one lost sheep, and we've got the 99 sheep safe in the pastures under the watchful eye of the shepherd. Now, I think the lost sheep is actually a little bit easier to understand. Uh, it, the lost sheep, is, it's quite clear. It's someone who's not in a relationship with God. It's someone who has either maybe left God, left the church, left uh, what they once thought was true, or perhaps someone who's never known it and is just has been searching for their lifetime. The lost sheep is probably a more relatable and understandable character for someone who is lost and on that journey. But here's the tricky bit, who are the 99? When I first read the parable, I actually found myself pretty quick to consider myself in the 99. As most churchgoers and Christians might do, but I got a bit confused at the end. See, Jesus concludes, right at the end of this, this um, scripture here, there'll be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Hold on. Uh, I thought everyone needed to repent. No one's perfect, right? So, who are these 99 that don't need to repent? Is it the religious leaders? Do religious leaders not need to repent? Does Pastor Lee Hinkle, does he, does he not need to repent? The disciples? In the Wycliffe commentary, it suggests that this is actually a semi-ironical reference to the Pharisees who regard themselves as infinitely better than the publicans, the sinners. It's ironic. That's why I kind of feel like how it might have actually gone is that Jesus, he, he didn't get up and look at the Pharisees, he just stayed talking to the tax collectors and the sinners and he said it loud enough that if the Pharisees were willing to listen, they'd catch the irony and they might actually have a little bit more of a think about what he's saying. So who needs to repent? In Luke 13, 1 to 5, we have quite a, um, a strange story of some terrible things having happened. There was a, a tower, <coughs> sorry, a tower in Shalom that fell and killed 18 people. There was another incident where there were some people killed by the, um, by the Romans. And they're asking Jesus about this. And his response to it, and I think it's a very tense re response when we have heard of some tragedies happening this week even alone. 
do you think that those victims, that they were more guilty than all the others living in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you too will perish. It's a pretty heavy response when there's been some tragedy. It's terrible what's happened, but the thing is, we're all on that same journey for peril, unless we repent. Repent's a pretty tricky word. Uh, It often is associated with a bad feeling. It's very clear though. It's a 180 degree turnaround. It's one thing to say sorry, but to say sorry and turn around and completely change your actions, that's the repentance we're talking about in the Bible. So what I'd like to suggest is that we are all the lost sheep. You need to relate to the lost sheep or you'll find yourself like the Pharisee under some false gospel that they actually don't need to be rescued. They don't need to repent because they already are doing everything good enough. They're already following all the rules. Now, let me clarify. You might be here this morning and identify with that lost sheep currently out in the wild or you might be the lost sheep whom is found. Yeah? You might be the lost sheep who is found. You are already laid on the shepherd's shoulders. You've already returned to your creator and you're confident in your salvation. But you were a lost sheep and now you're found. As soon as you forget that, you're at risk of falling into a doctrine of works. You're at risk of forgetting how much God has actually already done for you and how much you need him all the time. So which sheep are you? How many of you have the initial reaction that you're in the 99? Be warned of the last words of this parable and catch yourselves, catch yourselves from being like the Pharisees who forget that they can't save themselves. Uh, I think this is um, quite a good time just to acknowledge how hopeless sheep are. Uh, I actually was hoping we'd have a a data projector to show a picture of a sheep, um, but we we don't. So I've got my mum to bring in our dog. Uh, So did you bring Coco? Did I ask you that? I didn't ask you that. Sorry, okay. Uh, no, we can still, that's all right. Uh, I've, got, I've got this. This, uh, this is a great cardigan I like to wear sometimes, just to help picture a sheep in your head. So, picture a sheep. We're all there now. Uh, and uh, a sheep, we often actually use this as a, a bit of criticism. You know, you might say to someone, you're calling them a sheep because they just blindly go along with a the crowd. They make mistakes, they... They, they would never make because they just followed people blindly and didn't even think about it. Uh, the thing about sheep, they're, they're not too good at making a calculated decision. Uh, they, um, the lost sheep, as a farmer will tell you, once they're out in the wilderness, they're not going to be able to find their own way back home. Uh, and they're not like a dog, they can't sort of sniff their way back home. They're, they're not like a bird that can manage to fly across a country and land in the same spot a whale that can migrate across the ocean. A sheep's are a little bit different. And the more you think about it, uh, actually, the more offensive it is that Jesus is calling us all sheep. Uh, but maybe this is the point. Maybe this is a point of humility here. Maybe we need to relate more to a hopeless sheep uh, than anything when it comes to the idea of finding God. Um, at the risk of mentioning another parable, oh, I think I might be at my cap of how many parables I'm mentioning in one sermon, but I just want to mention the prodigal son. It's, it, follows in, it follows in Luke just after this. The prodigal son, uh, I don't think these two parables are necessarily designed to be commenting 
on the elements of free will or predestination or God's will or anything that, that tricky, uh, but I think it can actually be quite helpful to consider both of these and look at the difference in the way that the sun returns and the way the sheep returns. So the son, he's allowed to follow his own adventure, take his inheritance before his parents have died, spend all his money, squander it, blow it, end up at absolute rock bottom with nothing left, eating with pigs. And he, he considers he'll return to his father and hopefully working for his father will be better than what he's currently got. The sheep, on the other hand, the sheep has no idea, does it? The sheep isn't weighing up a decision on whether he'll go back or not. The sheep is just wandering, lost. The sheep has the shepherd to come and throw him over his shoulder. The sheep can't do it itself. It can't find its way home itself. It's a beautiful picture of our hopelessness. A beautiful picture of our hopelessness. It's not a depressing picture of our hopelessness. A depressing picture of our hopelessness is the sheep that doesn't get found, the sheep that keeps wandering. But that's not what we're reading, is it? It's a beautiful picture because the sheep is pursued by the shepherd. That's the how bit. If you were taking notes, we're on how at the moment. One of the most amazing things I've seen the human brain do is boast. You can't believe what people can find to boast in, you know? They'll, they'll pick a team to win a particular sporting event and their team will win. And they'll tell you how great they are that they picked that team to win. They weren't even on the field and they'll still be able to boast. You, you might have heard someone get a promotion at work and then it turns out they only got it because someone else in the office left. And they'll still boast in how great they are that they were able to take on that. We catch ourselves doing it all the time. And this, it comes from our pride. This is the danger This is the danger of thinking that you chose God. Somehow, our mind can even twist the idea of our salvation into thinking that somehow we did it ourselves. Now, I am not talking about the idea of people believing that they're saved by their works, by the actions that they do. I am actually talking about people who are truly saved, people who have a true understanding of the gospel a true understanding that Jesus died for them and they are saved by His work on the cross and not what they did. But somehow, somehow still, we can just twist that so slightly in a way that you were the one who was smart enough, open enough, insightful enough to actually consider Jesus to be the way, the truth and the life. You can still make it about yourself. You can be proud in your ability to be saved. But the only thing we can boast in is in Jesus Christ. Not that you have faith in Him, just Him. Just Him. It's such a slight thing to notice, but it's a reason why we, we often find ourselves judging an unbeliever or even wishing judgment on those who do wrong. It's that slight twist in the way we're thinking. Here's what I think the parable is saying. Not only can you not save yourself with your works, You can't even find the one to save you without him finding you in the first place. I know there are some pretty uh, key testimonies of people that will have no trouble agreeing with what I've just said. Perhaps they've had such an encounter with God that it's so, so strong and clear in their mind 
uh, that God came and grabbed them and threw them on his shoulder. You think about the Apostle Paul who contributed so many letters in the New Testament. He was Saul. He was the one leading the persecution against Christianity in the Jewish church. He was leading deaths and killings that were happening to Christians. He meets with Jesus on the road to Damascus. After Jesus has ascended to heaven, he's blinded, he is awestruck, he meets with the Creator and he changes. There is no doubt for Paul in his life that he had an encounter with Christ and God threw him on his shoulders and dragged him back home. He changed his name, it was so dramatic. I was thinking of changing my name because everyone gets it wrong. My brother and sister have easy names, but I got a hard one anyway. There are stories, probably, uh, even within this congregation of people who had a dramatic call to Christ. But there's actually a lot of us, and including myself, that have a less Hollywood-style encounter with God. And uh, this is where it's a little bit more difficult to consider. This is, you know, for the person who grows up in a Christian home, who kind of feels like they were always kind of made aware of it, considered it, used their rational, challenged by a few other worldviews, walked away for a bit, but then they decided, you know what? God's for me. I've made the decision. This is a big challenge when you read the parable of the lost sheep, isn't it? Remember, God did it all. God even put you in that family and allowed you to be exposed and have a position to consider that he was the way. His hand was in every part of it. And it kind of makes you feel a little bit insignificant in your own salvation, doesn't it? But that's why Jesus is calling us sheep. That's why we have this parable. It's exactly how we're meant to feel. And from that, when we actually make ourselves insignificant in it, we can marvel at just how amazing it is that God would come and rescue us and just how much work it it took through His Son to save us. I want to share an interesting testimony and I can certainly recommend the book, uh, Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. It's a, a story by Nabil Qureshi, He's a, a man who was um, born and raised in the United States in a Muslim family that uh, had migrated there from Pakistan. He loved the Quran. He loved his teachings. He loved his mum and his dad and his sister. He loved the people around him. As he grew, he'd have conversations with, with different people of different beliefs, Christians, atheists. He would challenge them on if Jesus really was the one who died on the cross, how can science say that the Big Bang happened and there was no creator? He would love it. He'd engage with that all through school, all through university. He made a very good friend in his time studying science in university, a man called David Wood, who was a Christian. Uh, And along with another Buddhist friend, the three of them were the start of every joke uh, every time they'd walk into a bar. Uh, And they would would talk and constantly uh, challenge each other and discuss things. And uh, Nabil, a little bit out of his own pride to try and prove Christianity wrong with his own agenda there, decided he would pursue the Bible and try to understand it. He spent so much time weighing up the historical side of it, the literature, the texts, the way it was written, the meanings of it, the possible for misinterpretation. And what happened to him was that he actually became more and more compelled that the story of Jesus was the truth and the way to God. He states in his book that he was 99% sure that Christianity was true. But he was 100% sure that Islam was true. And he was 100% sure his family would disown him if he became a Christian. 
He was at this point for a long time sitting on the 99%. He had given everything he could intellectually to the topic, but he couldn't make a step past that 99. I would recommend reading the book, but uh, to, to be a bit of a spoiler alert here, God gave him three profound dreams. One involving the narrow door that is hard to enter, another one full of images that he was able to decipher with some uh, Arab-based image books, uh, dream books. And from these profound dreams, he'd went to the 100% and believed in Jesus Christ. He could do as much as he could himself, and then what did he need? He needed the shepherd to throw him on his shoulders and give him an experience and a connection that allowed him to truly believe. It tends to go without saying, but what's the alternative in this story? The sheep dies. The sheep starves, it freezes, or maybe something else finds it before the shepherd does and uh, ends up like my cardigan. Uh, And that little sheep, its story ends tragically. The devil's greatest illusion is for us to believe that the world is enough for us and it's okay to settle with it. That being lost isn't actually so bad. Uh, You can actually keep yourself quite busy when you're lost. You can, you know, can play sport, you can work, you can have friends, you can be in relationships, you can kill 30 minutes a day on your newsfeed on Facebook. And heck, is it even that much better to be back in the pastures? Was it kind of boring? You know what that doesn't do? That attitude doesn't deal with the end of the story, does it? It doesn't deal with what happens if the sheep stays lost. The prodigal son, he got there, didn't he? He got right to the bottom and he wanted to go back. He wanted to go back home. Don't be fooled and don't be fooled that the lost sheep out there are okay. They're actually pretty confident, the lost sheep, and they're pretty convincing as well and sometimes even more sure than you are that they're fine. But Jesus, he was sure they weren't okay. He was sure that the lost needed to be found. And when he found it, he laid it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbours, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. There is nothing that will be able to explain what it's like to be with God. That's why Jesus used parables. St. Augustine states, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds in you. Does that resonate with anyone? Our heart is restless until it finds rest in you. You know that feeling like just before you go on a holiday and you get really excited or maybe you're going on your second date and it's getting pretty real. Maybe you got a promotion at work or you had a cool sporting opportunity. You get that feeling of excitement, don't you? Do you know what it is? It's hope. It's actually hope. It's our heart doing what it's programmed to do. But none of those things quite satisfy like like they ought to. Satisfaction is only available through knowing God. The true satisfaction that our heart is programmed for is only available through knowing God. And that's why God celebrates. Because we're not dealing with a robotic omniscient being, a thoughtless design just carried by its own momentum. That's not the world we live in. In 1 Timothy 2, Paul provides instructions on worship. He encourages us to pray and he says, This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all people to be saved and to come to know 
to come to a knowledge of, of the truth. God's a 100% kind of God. He cares about all the lost sheep. And we have a God that loves us so much, but He knows we need Him. So He sent out the rescue mission for us. Finally, I'd like you just to think about what you're going to take out of this parable. How do you actually go out and tackle this on your day-to-day? My message is to the lost sheep who are now found. The lost sheep who are now found. You're actually called to join the search party. As a found sheep, you can now serve the shepherd and help search for lost sheep. And there are many. They're right in our backyard, aren't they? Do you have the same heart as that shepherd? Do you have the same heart for the lost? How do you feel about the lost? Do you actually realise they're all lost? Or have they convinced you that they're all okay? At the markets, in the schools, on the footy field, in the councils and parliament, in the pubs, clubs and coffee shops along the Strip and Frio, have they convinced you that they're all okay? Because Jesus knows that they're not okay. And that's why he came first to sit and dine with the tax collectors and the sinners. You can already see him sitting there around them, can't you? With his arm already around their shoulder, already starting to carry them as he spends time with them. They're the ones he goes to and they will find rest in him. So I'm sure you'll read this parable once or twice more in your lifetime, uh, but my challenge to you is that whenever you read it, make sure you relate to the lost sheep first. Don't fool yourself into thinking you're the 99 who don't need to repent. Relate to that lost sheep and be so glad that heaven is rejoicing that you're found. Let's spend some time praying and then we'll move on. Thank you, Lord, for this message. Thank you for the opportunity to speak here and the challenge you've given me by just thinking about this in my own life. Lord, I pray that I won't think I'm just the 99 who don't need to do anything but I remember that I was lost and now I'm found. Lord, I pray for this congregation. I pray for those who were lost and are now found that I won't forget how much they needed God to save them and how much they need Him to sustain them. Lord, I pray for the lost that are still lost. I thank You that You are a God who has great joy and great work to find them, that You have done the work with Jesus and You are after their hearts and the hounds of heaven are coming that you are going to make change in this city and we can be a piece of that puzzle and used by you. And I pray for our willingness and our confidence every time we take a step to ask someone or tell them about you, Lord, that we know we're doing the right thing because this is what you command. Pray for that in in your name. Amen. Thank you, Silas.